Hey everybody, it's Kate. A little note ahead of today's Off the Looking Glass. You will hear Jess say that we interviewed Tara before the Pac-12 tournament, which obviously is also before the NCAA tournament. But we had this episode weeks in the making, and so even though Stanford has been eliminated early from the NCAA tournament, I think everything we talk about with Tara, as well as the extra extra, makes for a great episode. Enjoy. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. Jess. Kate. Jess. Yes. We've had guests on this show before, but I'm not sure I've ever been quite as nervous to interview someone. Yes, because this person, who we will name probably in eight seconds, I don't know why I'm pretending like it's we're not going to name this Tara person. It's Tara Vanderveer, the head coach of women, <laughs> the women's basketball program at Stanford. But go on. Thank yes. you. Get that out of the way. Our goal was to get her to be lighthearted, to banter yeah. with us, maybe a laugh or two here or there. You really connected with her off the top Tried. about her childhood home which I thought yeah. was a great entry point until we got to the part later in the interview, which people listened to where she was like, I didn't even know what Netflix was until 2020. Yeah. And, and then the complete yeah, disconnect in. She just she loves separate. basketball. We'll have more on that later, but Tara's on this episode. We had a Stanford doubleheader because we had Cameron Brink last weekend, obviously. It's March Madness. We talked to Tara before all of the tournaments and all of those games. So I think people will like it. Stay tuned. She's got a lot of insightful answers about the state of, of college hoops and all the changes happening in the NCAA. And we figured since we've done full Tennessee episodes and we've certainly done a lot on Notre Dame, we figured we would finally give Palo Alto its due mm -hmm. in the annals of women's basketball history because we also have an extra extra today about the first ever intercollegiate women's basketball game played in 1896, Jess, in the San Francisco Armory. Big month for the Bay Area. On Off the Looking Glass mm. and in the news. And in yes. women's basketball, of course, as always. So stay tuned. Enjoy the episode. Our guest today is the winningest coach in women's college basketball history. Her teams have won three NCAA titles across 30 years. She was the head coach of the legendary 1996 gold medal winning Olympic team. And she's the five time national coach of the year. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on. Tara Vanderveer. I don't know if you know this, but I'm from upstate New York. Okay. Where? Schenectady. I don't know if it was a myth my parents told me or if it's true, but there was like a hairstylist or like a business on Route 7 when I was growing up and it was like Vanderveer hairstyling or Vanderveer. It was a Vanderveer business. And they always told me that whoever ran it was related to you. I don't think so. Um, oh, I did live in so Schenectady. Where in Schenectady did you live? I lived like a mile from Union College. My house was a 211 Juniper Drive. I mean, the houses look almost identical to when I lived there like 50 years ago or more. And it just really hasn't changed at all, you know? But yeah. uh, it's a really fun community. So we got the 518 connection. That's yes, all I'm saying. <laughs> 
so I was reading the um, the Chantel Jennings piece mm-hmm. on the Athletic, and everyone that I know who has like either played for you or known you for a long time, or like even Pat Summit or any coach, they always tell this story. Or even Seal Barry, who I played for at Colorado, mm-hmm. they tell the story of like the mellowing of the coach from like when they're in their 20s and they're making you run 700, 800s until, you know, as they like whatever, come into their own. Is that a story we tell about coaches or is that something you've actually experienced? I think that is probably a true thing. You know, as you get older, you kind of, you see things differently. You know, your perception is different. And I think that for me, like being with the Olympic team, I went from kind of this parent mode to grandparent mode. You know how your grandparents are more laid back than your parents most of them are anyway. But I think I kind of experienced that. Maybe they're more likely to spoil you and give you breaks yeah. for certain things. Yeah, you don't get so upset about stuff, you know. So what if you spill the milk? Just who cares, you know, let the dog look it up. Or you're seeing a different, a bigger picture, a different picture. You're more relaxed. I think that's true. What has your relationship with rest been when it comes to your team, have you ever gone through periods where you feel like rest is a scary thing you don't want to give to actually embracing what you need from it? So one of my best friends is a track coach, and he always said to me, Tara, you can rest is not a four-letter word, and you can tell people how much you work, but never tell them how much you rest. You want people to think they're out there doing everything when really the secret is rest, maybe. But hey, it might be. we won't talk about rest. <laughs> I mean, if you read that article, I mean, kind of, that kind of describes me a lot, you know, in that, you know, for the whole month of August, I'm in Minnesota. I mean, I make recruiting phone calls. I watch like an occasional video or something like that, but it is uh, recharging. And just the fact that a lot of people, they want to act like they all, they, you know, they grind, they work. And I'm like, that's not that impressive. You know, I think being able to be, figure out what your priorities are, get your work done, and, you know, and live a more balanced life. I think you're going to be a, do a better job. Not being like crazy off the deep end all the time. When sometimes it, like as a writer, if somebody writes a book or a piece and you read it and you're like, God, I really wish I would have written that. Is there an equivalent? Like, has there ever been a team that you've played against where you're like, I love the way they play or a program and the way they do things. And you're like, that's good. Not that you want to be their coach, but just that you look from afar and you're like, mm-hmm. I like the way they did that. I like the way Utah's playing. I really like how they're playing. Have you talked to Lynn? No, not yet. I think she's doing a fantastic job. And their team plays basketball in a way that, you know, they haven't gotten to the point where they've gotten great fans there yet. You know, the fans will go for gymnastics. But the way they play, if you like basketball, you should go watch them play. They're really, really fun to watch. They move the ball real well. They shoot a lot. Now, were you with Seal when you ran triangle offense? Did you guys run a triangle? one for Hannah Jump. That is so tough to defend. I mean, that's good ball movement. That's good, you know. Like, um, teams don't really do that very much anymore. There's a lot of stand around basketball. But uh, Lynn, they run really nice stuff. We played y'all in Boise, Idaho to go to the Elite 2002. 2002. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a Sealberry story that you can um, pass my way so that I can lord it over her? Sure. You can, um, you can talk to her about her Scrabble. She needs to learn the two letter words. <laughs> so we would play Scrabble all the time on the, uh, with the Olympic team, you know, when she was uh, with me as an, uh, as a coach and we would travel, we'd go to Australia, we traveled all over the world and we started playing and 
I think one time we played and uh, I think she beat me one time and then I said, okay, that's it. And so I, you know, memorized all the two letter words and started really studying a little bit and then it was over. Yeah. She hasn't really won a lot against you, I take it? No, she hasn't. Okay. I'll text her right now. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You mentioned some of the places that you travel for games and like some of the rituals you might have in different cities, but with the way that the conference realignment has now changed Mm -hmm. moving forward, especially in the Pac-12, what are your thoughts on how that shakes up now your basketball program and some of the other women's sports at, at Stanford? Well, I think it was a shock, you know, July 1st that USC and UCLA are going to the Big Ten. I don't think conference realignment is finished yet, but I'm not panicking. I mean, we're in a we're in a good situation. We've got great players. We'll play in a great league. I would not want to be a women's basketball team having to travel as much as they're going to have to travel. I would not want that at all. So I'm really glad Stanford didn't say we're going in the Big Ten without a West Coast competition. So if we end up going to the Big Ten and end up being with USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, whatever schools, Colorado, that'd be fine. But I would not want to be USC or UCLA, their basketball coach or any of their players right now. Just thinking about traveling all the time back east, all the time to the Midwest, it would be to the cold, to different time zones. You know, I think it's all about football and it's not in the best interest of the student athletes. When you saw all the stuff go down two years ago in the NCAA tournament and you being someone who, did you play during the AIAW? I did. You did. I played against Steel too. Ask her who won that game. Okay. <laughs> My guess is you did. Where did you play in college? I played at Indiana. That's right. And she played she at was, Kentucky. Yeah. In our podcast, we, we often tell stories from the history of women's sports. Mm-hmm. So this will seem like a long ago question, but it's sort of relevant in the world that, that we live in. When the NCAA took over the AIAW, where were you at that time? Not physically, but like in your career. And what were your thoughts on that? I was at Ohio State. I don't disagree that maybe a university should have one governing body. It should have started right from the beginning. The NCAA should have right from the beginning had women's sports in the same way that they had men's sports. The way it happened, kind of it was a hostile takeover. I don't agree with how it happened. The disrespect for the women administrators and leaders was on total display. You know, the fact that then they became like SWAs and, you know, a lot of the departments that were women led then, you know, just basically got wiped out. And I think there were a lot of great ideas that women had to keep college athletics sane, sustainable, that in fact have been adopted by the NCAA, but were scoffed at and laughed at when the AIW was first saying, hey, we should have limits on recruiting. Oh, that's a stupid idea. You know, of course, we do have them and we need them. A lot of the ideas that made sense are now part of what we do. But um, the promises that the NCAA had in terms of money and support were not realized. You know, 50 years later, we're still in a tournament in San Antonio in the manner in Indianapolis. And the disparity is huge. Did you play during the AIAW? The AIW International The AIAW. AIAW. Kind of, it was a hostile takeover. 
Kate, we made it down another rabbit hole because... Yes, we did. We all need your help. Everyone listening to this interview, myself included, need you to refresh our memories on what Tara is talking about with the AIAW and the NCAA. And I know that you know better than anyone else what happened because you wrote an extra extra about this last year. I did. Refresh our memories, Kate. Before I wrote this extra extra, whenever somebody said the AIAW, my eyes glazed over. (laughs) But it stands for the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, the AIAW. Is it fair to say that there's too many vowels in that acronym? Oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's absolutely. We need an acronym that we can pronounce, I think, like a word, right? Yeah, I wish that the women of the AIAW had had a branding meeting and they'd been like, (laughs) let's rebrand ourselves as the ladies of hoop or whatever, the LOHs. (laughs) What do you think? That could have been a little snappier. Yeah, well, you just need to be able to say it like a word. That's what all the yeah. good tech companies have. And hey, yeah, you know, this episode's well. all about innovation. So, yes. well, that was their first mistake. I'm just kidding. We're being really critical of this organization that doesn't exist anymore. Because what happened? Kate, tell us what happened. So the AIAW, the AYAWA, they actually governed women's basketball for about a decade. But before then, women were governing women. And we explained how the NCAA took over in an extra extra last season. Let's go to a Sports Illustrated article to describe what happened at that convention in 1981. The ultimate showdown came in January 1981 at the NCAA convention at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami. The debate on whether the NCAA should hold championships for women was intense. The vote was a 124-124 tie. The recount showed that the Nays had won 128-127. As Lopiano and her victorious allies met with writers, the pro-NCAA side came up with a plan. They realized that Cal had voted no at the urging of its women's athletic director. When she left the room, the NCAA backers approached the Bears faculty athletics representative and convinced him to introduce a motion to reconsider. The motion passed and a new vote was called. Sensing the shifting winds, the delegates approved the measure by a count of 137-117. A quote from the next day's New York Times article. This marks the death knell of the AIAW, one delegate said moments later. The NCAA has just taken over, probably for good. If you want to hear this full extra extra, it was in the Land Before Nine episode, which was on June 22nd. See, there's good branding. That was, we, we made it rhyme. We referenced a movie. Like we did a lot with that title. We did. We're going to name before time. All I think about there is a brontosaurus, an animated brontosaurus. Okay. Right. Well, the point is we do not want to let these women become the dinosaurs of history. We need to keep their memories alive, the AIAW women. So please go back and listen to that. So that is what Tara is talking about. She's talking about the governing body that existed before mostly the men of the NCAA decided they needed to govern women's sports so that they could limit their resources. And that is not a flippant statement. That was almost really like the agreed upon mission statement of the NCAA back in the early days. Well, luckily they put just as much effort, time and resources into women's sports as they did men's. And we have no disparity in 2023. The future is so beautiful. All right, well, let's go back up to the current time and talk to Tara some more. What are your thoughts on the transfer portal? Like Dawn Staley was talking about how you can go into this mode where you're like perpetually recruiting. 
Right. I imagine, I don't know. I mean, I'm projecting onto you here, but I imagine you were like, listen, I recruited you once. <laughs> I'm not recruiting you every year. But like, wh- how do you have to approach that now that it is something that you have to navigate? I think fortunately, I'm not navigating it a lot just because of being at Stanford. We've had one person go in the portal in the time that the portal has existed, you know, as an undergraduate. And we've had one person come to Stanford. I've only had two transfers in the whole 37 years I've been at Stanford. You know, if someone's unhappy in a place and they want to go somewhere else, I think it's fine. The fact that coaches poach players, they keep recruiting players, even though that's illegal. That doesn't show much integrity on the behalf of a a college coach. For the most part, we don't use the portal because I think a lot of times people that are in the portal are unhappy. And I don't really want to bring someone that's unhappy into our program. That's not like totally true, maybe of a grad transfer. You know, you're going to have some bad days, you know, every day, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to get through it sometimes. And you have to, you know, sometimes you suffer a little bit to get the, you know, to get your degree or to play on a championship team. And you know, that's part of growing up and that's part of life and learning. One of the other recent changes that I've, I know you've spoken about is how, uh, NAL is affecting female athletes in particular. And the New York Times wrote a story mm-hmm. called New Endorsements for College Athletes Resurface in Old Concerns, Sex Cells. And uh, in the story, you were quoted as saying that sometimes we take two steps forward and then a step back and that you considered it a step back. I'm wondering what about that article and that the premise of that article that you would consider a step back for female athletes. I think that uh, women athletes have the the right and the freedom to market their brand, who they are, who they want to be any way they want to. But I think that if NIL is just viewed for women athletes through the lens of someone, a sex symbol, or all they're going to do is wear bathing suits when they're a basketball player, not a swimmer, and somehow that all they are is a sexual object, I think that that is a step back. They have that choice. That's their prerogative. And I'm not being critical of someone that does that. You know, the gymnast that they used, you know, kind of fits the society's model of, you know, petite, blonde, but female athletes are more than that is my message. But the NIL right now that favors men is not NIL in the way that the rule was designed. It's in the collective. So are you familiar with that and how those are working? Yeah. So as an example, the collectives in your alma mater in Colorado, when you have uh, Deion Sanders, who basically says, guys, go ahead, transfer, you're out of here. I'm going to bring in my own guys. That's They're paying them. They're going to be giving them and all kinds of NIL collective money. So, you know, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40,000, 50,000 for the linemen, 3 million for a quarterback, which is sometimes the going rate. I think that that is a problem and it's not sustainable. And it was not how the rule was intended. When you have conversations about what the future of college sports are, given where we are right now and it not being sustainable Mm -hmm. and it heading toward looking like, a minor league or something of that nature driven by whatever Alabama football is going to do and Ohio state football. I mean, we've talked on here and in other places about like, okay, those schools are going to break off and license the image from the school and like Mm -hmm. not have the same connection to it. I mean, that's one theory, but what, 
when you look at the future of what college sports can be, what do you see? I think what college sports is struggling with a lot right now is it pay for play. And are student athletes, in fact, employees of the university? And if they are, what does that mean for, you know, if you played on a team, if you're an employee of the university, then you can be fired. You can be disciplined in a way that maybe you can't be as an athlete. If Jessica is averaging 25 points a game and you're averaging five points a game, you know, we can pay Jessica three times as much or five times as much as you. The issues are about pay for play. And with the Alston case, I believe that, you know, the Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch kind of opened it up for that, saying maybe this is not just, you know, student athlete and NIL and Alston money, but in fact, you're an employee. I think there are a lot of schools that would have trouble with that, Stanford being one of them. Do you think that student athletes should be employees? When I was in school, I had a job typing. You know, I was paid to work in the sociology department as a typist, so I was an employee. And I don't know that I know the answer to it, but is someone on scholarship? I'm assuming, Kate, you were on scholarship. Were you an employee in your mind? I didn't think so, although at various points when you're struggling, you're like, I'm like an employee, you know, but generally speaking, that's not how I thought of myself. I think that what we're struggling with is, is a student athlete who's on scholarship to help pay for school. And we're really the only model in the world that does it this way. Universities in Europe or the rest of the world, they don't have teams that represent the universities. So is a student athlete who is getting their education, is it quid pro quo, you know, you're playing and you get an education and we're helping you because you're spending basically five hours a day on your sport. You know, we're helping you do your school. We provide, you know, training table, we provide tutors for you. It's a little convoluted. I think that there's probably some arguments that would say, yes, you know, you're an employee. Having been an employee, it does feel different than being maybe on scholarship. Yeah, it's kind of like what I think we would talk about is like, it's like tying insurance to our jobs. It's Mm -hmm. this weird thing, this weird model we've created that when you really dig in, there's a lot of issues, doesn't make a ton of sense for everybody. And yet it's so entrenched, just like athletic scholarships and colleges that you start to build all of this like strange infrastructure around it that doesn't make a ton of sense from the outset at various points. Okay. We were going to kind of pivot because we've got fun stuff to ask you. I know we're going to be respectful of your time, just like a couple more questions, but what is the seminal sports movie in your mind? I don't know if us, I don't know if a sports movies are what I really like, but um, maybe uh, chariots to fire that goes way back. Yeah. And there's the Princess Di connection with Chariots of Fire, which I learned on The Crown. You know, I don't really watch a lot of television, especially during the season. But when the season's over and during the pandemic, that's when I learned about Netflix and Hulu. I didn't even know Mm -hmm. about them before the pandemic. What? Yeah, (laughs) because I never watched television. When someone said Netflix and chill, what did you think? I didn't know what they were talking about. I was just like... (laughs) If it's not a basketball game, if it's not the news, I didn't watch it. What was your favorite show to watch during the pandemic? I started watching um, How to Get Away with Murder. I'm Professor Annalise Keating, and this is Criminal Law 100, or as I prefer to call it, 
how to get away with murder. And what else? There were, I, I think there are just like a lot of different movies. I was crazy about watching a movie or show every night. I totally got into it. But really during the pandemic, the thing I started started to do more than anything was I played bridge. My mother lives in Colorado. She lives right by the campus. So we started playing bridge every day. Let's play some bridge. And that was my pandemic use of time. I love playing bridge. It's fun. Little bridge. Never played bridge. I'll teach you. Ultimate game. All right. Last question, I think, unless Jess has another one. I think this should be fun. Is there a single game from your career that if it was the only thing you could watch, only game you could ever watch again, which game would you want to be able to watch on repeat? college or anything i mean i guess i'm thinking your coaching time at stanford okay i was gonna say the gold medal olympic game when we played brazil that was a really fun game to watch and i'd only watched it in person and then once during the pandemic when they showed it on tv at stanford a really fun game i don't know there's been so many of them i might say one time we played arkansas it was a long time ago 1990 was Scored, I think, 124 points. And Jennifer Agee and Katie Stedding, it was their last game in Maples. And it was really exciting game. Did you ever read In These Girls, Hope is a Muscle? I did read it. Yeah, that Jamila Weidman. Me too. Yep. Yep. Did it come out after you had her at Stanford? I think it came out about the same time that she was here at Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. Now that is a seminal book growing up. I read it when I was like 12. I loved it. That was a great book. And Jamila was just, oh, she's special. So smart. Brilliant. So smart, doing awesome things. Sealberry responded mm-hmm. to my text. Okay. She said, LOL, which is great for me that Seal's using LOL. Just really love yeah. that. She said, that says it all about us. I'm trying to get three-syllable words that net 25. She's going for two-letter words that net 50. The process versus the <laughs> W. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I think she's defending herself. Yeah. She's funny. <laughs> I would also get the seven letter words too. That gives you extra 50 points. excited to tell this story. It's one of my favorites from the history books, deep, deep into the history books. We go back in time to the dawn of the game of basketball, when it was actually still two words. The year is 1896, San Francisco, a time and a place when women were, literally and figuratively, starting to stretch their legs. Senda Berenson. Senda Berenson known as the mother of women's basketball. She was a physical education teacher at Smith College, just down the road from where James Naismith invented the game. Senda Berenson on the East Coast developed this game, but she never had her team play other schools because they were worried about the competition, what it would mean for the femininity of the women. That was author Sue Macy, who wrote Basketball Bells, 
how two teams and one scrappy player put women's hoops on the map. The book tells the story of the first ever intercollegiate women's basketball game played between Stanford and Cal at the San Francisco Armory. Here's Sue again. On the West Coast, Stanford was a brand new school. Cal had been around for a while and the Cal women were actually more liberal, more independent. The Stanford women were kind of pampered. Okay, so not much has changed. The Stanford women were kind of pampered. Herbert Hoover was at Stanford at the time. If it shall appear, while I have been had the honor of the presidency, that I have contributed to the part required from this high office. In fact, he was best friends with the future husband of the Stanford captain. <laughs> so they heard about this game and they decided to challenge Cal. And I think it just couldn't have happened on the East Coast because the East Coast was much more concerned with propriety. And these were the renegades out West. These renegades, the Stanford women challenging the Cal women, the Cal women accepting the overture, agree to meet in the middle or thereabouts in downtown San Francisco. But before we get to the day of the game, let's talk about the game itself, because it looked very different from the game we now know. Senda Berenson decided that this was a really good way for girls to start doing something in gym class that was not boring because basically they did calisthenics back then. And so she rewrote the rules for women and she was very concerned that people would see this as too strenuous for women. So she divided the court up. She divided it into thirds and there were nine players on each side. So that's 18 players on the court, six in each third, with no dribbling, but players could run with the ball, but only up to five feet, which is, if you think about it, really not far. Then a player had to either shoot or pass. Vestiges of this divided court remained for women until as late as the 1990s, when they played half-court basketball in places like Iowa and Oklahoma. The point of Senda's original rules were to limit physical interaction, but the women of Stanford and Cal did agree to some shifts, allowing the game to be more aggressive. It turns out that this game was so vigorous and women were throwing each other on the ground, trying to grab the ball. It was not a dainty game <laughs> at all. Their best laid plans did come to naught because these women went after the ball. This is where it gets fun. The major area papers all sent reporters and illustrators, but only women. The reporting was all done by women because men weren't allowed to watch the game. And this woman, Mabel Kraft, who it turns out was the first female editor of a Sunday supplement at a newspaper at the San Francisco Chronicle. She was assigned to tell this story and she didn't write it like we expect the sports report to be. She told a story. The women of Stanford wore red flannel. The women of Cal wore blue. And according to Kraft, the armory was sold out with 700 co-eds who roared until the glass doors and the gun cases shivered at the noise. The interest of men who were not allowed to watch the women engage in such unseemly behavior was piqued. And some tried to climb the walls to watch the action. For those who were inside the armory, 
the cost of admission was 50 cents, and part of the proceeds from the gate were used by Cal to fund an upcoming East Coast trip for their men's track team. So yeah, the profits from the first intercollegiate women's basketball game were used to subsidize men's sports. That's right. I think it represents this awakening of women at the same time the game was being played, women were riding bicycles for the first time ever. And they were suddenly taking possession of their physical being more than they ever had. And this was part of this rise up of women's empowerment, which was eventually quashed. <laughs> but in the 1890s, women started to see the extent of what they could do. The Stanford team returned to Palo Alto by train and was greeted by a loud and enthusiastic crowd. They'd won the game two to one, which is what happens when you can't dribble, can barely move, have 18 people on the court, no backboard, and are only allowed to shoot with one hand. But this story isn't about the final score. It's about the joy and vibrancy and excitement at the dawn of the women's game. Here's Sue Macy again, reading Mabel Kraft's words about the game, as printed in the San Francisco Chronicle. If those prudish 18th century dames with their flat chests, cricket spines, and elaborate samplers could have seen these 18 girls play leapfrog yesterday, falling on their backs with a thud that shook the floor and crashing against the walls, they would have expected that every bone in their bodies would be fractured. And so they would have been once. But that was before someone discovered that the self-same things that make vigorous men make vigorous women also. The joy and high of this first game didn't last long. Just three years later, 1899, the Stanford faculty abolished women's intercollegiate team sports because, quote, the physical strain upon the young women is too great, and that previous events had drawn unpleasant publicity. This last bit no doubt referring to the first game at the Armory. Even Cal, which hung on for a bit longer, found itself canceled by the university in 1907 as the men's team was officially formed. Like most colleges and universities across the country, Stanford and Cal didn't begin sponsoring teams again until the 1970s. And yet, there's something poetic knowing that one of the most legendary programs in women's basketball, winner of the 1990, 1992, and 2021 NCAA titles, also won the first ever game played. I asked Tara if, if they were aware of this game, and the Stanford women were, because it was part of their legacy, because they won, I guess. <laughs> and it was the starting point for their timeline of history of a team that has continued to be really good. Here. Let's give Mabel Kraft, eyewitness to this first ever game, the final word. Basketball wasn't invented for girls and there isn't anything effeminate about it. It was made for men to play indoors and it is a game that would send the physician who thinks the feminine organization so delicate into the hysterics he tries so hard to perpetuate.
Well, Kate, you certainly succeeded in telling that story to us in your extra extra, but the question remains, did we succeed in making Tara laugh? Joke along with no. us? No, okay. I don't recall even a chuckle. I, I don't even, I don't, thank, thank you, Jess, for laughing at that. <laughs> not, not even a chuckle. Not even a chuckle, but I got you to laugh even though I didn't even say anything funny. And I just yeah. wish Tara could have done that. I laugh when I'm uncomfortable though. So I don't know if that was funny Ugh. or I just feel like awkward about the lack of laughing Is that earlier. Why I, that's why I think <laughs> that you think I'm funny is because mostly you're just uncomfortable. Yes, maybe that's it. Okay. No, but you are, you are very funny. But no, the reason we couldn't quite connect with Tara is because she doesn't really watch TV or movies the way that we do. And that seems to be the thing we, me as a non-athlete, you as a former athlete, we tend to connect with our subjects that we interview with movies and shows and things like that. And I found- Pop culture. Yeah. Yes. And Anya found a article in The Athletic that she sent to us, our producer, with a reasoning behind why Tara didn't watch Netflix until 2020, had never heard of it. I'm going to read this to you, and this will explain a lot. It says, Vandervere estimates that during the season, she watches three to four hours of game video a day, which means she's able to watch a full game three to four times through. In the offseason, her staff says that number might be more. But even a conservative estimate puts Vandervere somewhere around 35,000 hours of film or nearly four years worth of film study during her Stanford career. Okay, so we never had a fighting chance. No. We didn't even have a chance to make her laugh. 35,000 hours of game film in her career. Other than yeah. sleeping, is there anything that you've ever like dedicated that much time to? Netflix! Netflix! <laughs> I have dedicated that much time to Netflix. Yes. Okay, because it sounds like a lot. And then I'm like three to four hours a day. I watch at least three to four hours oh, of at a minimum. Know, whatever show. Like The Last of Us, I crushed that. That was... I, I still have two episodes left. I'm behind. Okay, so just uh, as a warning. Okay, next time we talk to Tara, which it will happen again because we're going to have to take another crack at this, we also should reference her dogs, Enzo and Piper. I feel like if we... I led with Schenectady, New York. Mm-hmm. Not that funny. Mm-hmm. But if you lead with adorable puppies, I feel like you have an even smoother on-ramp to a great conversation. So yeah. we'll just keep that in our back pocket. I think that's a good plan. All right, well, who do we have to thank for helping us make the episode today? Well, we have Anya Alvarez to thank for that nugget, as well as for producing the show for us. We have you to thank for co-hosting the show, for laughing or feeling uncomfortable throughout the making of this show, and for producing the show. And we have Carl Scott, executive producing the show. We also have Joel Shupak, who helps sound design and edit the show and make it sound unique and uniquely off the looking glass. We also need to thank Tara Vanderveer for making time to join us and to Sue Macy for helping me tell the story of the first ever intercollegiate women's game. She is the author of Basketball Bells, which is a children's book about that first game. So go out and get that and support her awesome work. And support Kate Fagan and her new book, Hoop Muses, which is out in stores now. Everyone should go buy it. It's a great, it's a great book, Kate. I enjoyed reading it. Thanks, Jess. And it did make me laugh. It did. It really did. It's a crowd pleaser. (laughs) Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.